Season's greetings, everyone. With the holiday season upon us, we here at Stats and Stories are taking a break from our regularly scheduled programming, and instead, today's episode will feature a panel interview put together by the Royal Statistical Society, featuring Mike Hughes, Janina Sassine, and Denise Leavesley talking to Sir Bernard Silverman about his career and the future of the profession. So Mike, please take it away. I'm Mike Hughes from the RSS History section. It's my great privilege to chair this, this auspicious event today. So without further ado, let me hand over to Bernard and Denise. They hardly need any introductions. Both are eminent British statisticians with similar achievements. Both have had outstanding careers in both academia and the public sector. Both have headed Oxford colleges. Both are past presidents of the RSS and both have been honoured by our former Queen. I'm sure it will be a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much, Mike. So it's really lovely to be here and warm welcome to Bernard. Um, it's quite exciting to sit with you and, and have a conversation. So Bernard, can we start off by talking about your early career? So you've had a rich and varied career, which has involved many, what I would call right angle turns. But can you tell me about how you became a statistician and the first few years of your career when you were an academic? Well, thanks very much and welcome everybody. And um, I started off life as a mathematician. I was very good at maths, I suppose, at school. And I went to Cambridge to study mathematics. And um, I was originally thinking of becoming a pure mathematician. That's what I was keen on. But I realized as time went on, two things, first of all, I wasn't quite good enough a pure mathematician to make it, uh, make a success of it. I might say that the person that came top of my year went on to be the Prime Minister of Singapore, but that option wasn't open to me. Um, and, um, and I also wanted to do something which was more directly and obviously applied. Um, and so I got interested in probability and then in statistics. And then the other thing is we were in the early years of computing. And if you thought that the glitch we had now was a problem, it took me three months to get my first computer program working at all. Um, and I was also very interested in, um, in what the computer could do for us. Um, and in fact, while I was a graduate student, I gave up altogether because I was offered a job designing um, electronic calculators for a man called Clive Sinclair, who some will have heard of. And I co-designed the first um, programmable calculator you could put in your pocket, um, which if anyone still has one and it's still working, I'll be amazed. But there you are. Um, anyway, so I was at Cambridge in the statistical um, laboratory. Um, I um, did a lot of courses in the master's degree in diploma statistics and in the mathematical side, part three. Um, and, um, and then I sort of got very keen on the idea of how we could actually get um, graphical pictures to represent data, which sounds like nothing now. But remember that you couldn't even, um, there was no such thing even as a pen plotter. So the only way you could plot a graph was to print it out on a big line printer. You had to write your programs on punch cards initially. So it was, um, and so getting this all going was quite good. I 
got interested in a topic called density estimation, which is about drawing smooth kind of histograms. Um, and I was interested both in the theoretical side and in the practical side. And what I'm particularly keen on, and still now, is the idea that if you really want to do something, in my view, you should try and understand mathematically why it works and how it works. But you should also make sure that the thing you're doing is um, is actually useful. And it's this tension and, and um, supportive, creative tension between the two, which has been the theme of my research actually almost up to now. A lot of statistical research is either purely theoretical or it's purely empirical. And I suppose what I found interesting is the idea of, of how you can actually understand, let these two things build on one another. So that, um, that's, that's relevant to my next question, really, because after your years in academia, you made a move from statistical research to applications of science in government. Yes. Um, and that's an unusual move to make. Um, what challenges were involved in making such a Well, challenge? it wasn't, it wasn't unusual. So, I mean, if I may talk a bit more about my research, there were several areas. I mean, some of the people here may be interested. There were several areas where essentially what not just me, but a whole group of us was doing, were doing is essentially the foundations of, what, of a lot of what's called data science now. And so the idea of thinking of um, not just numbers, but more complicated signals as being data, um, all those things. I think what happened was that I, all all through my career, I spent time, I, you know, I was always keen on collaborating with different people. And I collaborated in my PhD, I collaborated with um, people doing medical statistics, interested in cop death. Later on, I collaborated in all kinds of different areas, material science, uh, legal cases, all sorts of things, engineering, um, medicine, and so on. So there, there are many different areas um, where I used to work uh, opportunistically sometimes with people. Um, and I've always been someone who has had an interest in broader things, which is how we probably met. You know, mm -hmm. I got very keen on the, the RSS, um, and Denise did also. Um, and we were both the uh, we were, we were, um, we in our day, the society had a president, but that person wasn't all that important. And the, the society <laughs> was actually run by the honorary secretaries. So there were three people who were called the honorary secretaries, and Denise and I were both at the same time honorary secretaries. Mm -hmm. Nearly every honorary secretary in history went on later to become the president. <laughs> Actually, um, we both did. But um, that, that, was, that was how it, how, how it used to work. So I think I've always had this broader kind of view. And actually, I, had, I collaborated with government in many different ways before I actually went to work full time. So, um, for example, for a long time, I was a non-executive director of the D Ministry of Defence's statistical agency. Um, I was involved in reviewing the response to the 2001 foot and mouth epidemic um, and so on. So I had all sorts. And then I did a, a project for the Department of Transport on what's called the sustainable development of Heathrow. Um, and so on. So there was all, there were also different things. So I, I, and I think I reached the point in my life where um, I didn't really 
feel I wanted to be an ordinary academic anymore. Right. And and I think that's just my personality. It was time to do something else. Yeah, and, but... and, and so I and so this and then at the same time, the whole structure of government chief scientific advisor and the chief scientific advisors was developing. And actually I knew Dave King, who was the previous um, GCSA, and he encouraged me. And I was approached with the possibility of being the chief scientific advisor of government department. I applied for it and I didn't get the job. And then later on, they came back to me and said, oh, there's another department looking for somebody. Um, do you know anyone that might be interested? I said, yes, I would be. It was the home office. And I applied. I got the job. And afterwards, I said, what, what's that all about? Oh, we didn't think you'd actually be interested yourself. I said, well, you know. So, so I got into it because there was there was a job, and I thought here's an opportunity to bring together my scientific, my quite wide scientific interests, my specialist statistics interests, and also my interest in public affairs more generally. And here is a really interesting opportunity, and so it turned out to be. I accept entirely that you, you've you always been interested in application and indeed that was your motivation for becoming a statistician rather than a pure mathematician. But it's different when you're actually the chief scientific it is. advisor. It is, it is, it is, it is. So um, the buck stops with you a lot of the time. Um, yeah? Uh, yes, that's all right. I don't mind. Okay. <laughs> so what were the challenges? Oh. And what was fun? Yes. I think the important thing is the ability to tailor your, well, first of all, you have to be able to advise on everything. So you are the owner. It's no good being someone who knows more and more about less and less. Mm -hmm. So you have to have some area which is maybe your own skill. You bring your own skill to particular problems. We can talk about some of those later. Um, but at the same time, you have to be, you will be called upon to give advice about any scientific topic whatsoever. And actually, it's more than that. You will be expected, or if you do it right, to bring a, to, to someone once put it to me, just keep reminding people to look at the evidence and look at the, um, look at what you, what you know and what you don't know. Um, most of the time you are not directly, I also had a big department that worked for me. I mean, it wasn't just me. I had, there were 500 scientists of various descriptions uh, working. So I was, I was, it was like being the dean of a big faculty, if you like. And so much of it is just being a senior civil servant and having a lot of people working on you. Um, but um, also it is, it is bringing this of outside perspective. Yeah. And what I found interesting was that, unlike most of the other senior people there, I hadn't, I'd, my career had not been inside the civil service, um, although that was true of many of them as well. Um, and I also found the, if I may say, I found the working atmosphere very, very, actually very pleasant um, because um, there are some very interesting people. And it's very nice because um, it's not, Unlike academia, if I may say, people are generally behave extremely well to each other. And secondly, there isn't this sense of hierarchy. So you don't, you know, the people get quite a lot of responsibility very quickly. And anyone, basically everybody's 
it, it, you know, there isn't there isn't quite the same hierarchical thing. So I I kind of took like a, I took to it like a duck to water in many ways. But the challenge the challenge is actually, interestingly, it's well the people at the very top of the department you didn't necessarily see very much of. So a lot of your work was building relationships with the policy civil servants or the operational civil yeah. servants to help. Um, help them along what they were doing, and um, and one of the challenges is, I suppose, that you you build relationships and the way ge the generalists work as civil servant service. You got you 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 you've got someone's figured out what to do and then they move on. So they keep they, they keep on moving on. That's actually interestingly one of the biggest challenges is to build the relationships and keep them going while people churn around. But that's all right. You can do that. Um, I I was quite. I think it's not a challenge, but what you need always to do is to give your advice in the right way, in both for the person you're speaking to and for the context in which you're speaking. So if you're in a big meeting, you might have literally one, you put your hand up, a topic is being discussed in a big meeting, uh, you've got essentially one sentence you, you will the the um, imagine there you are the, the home secretary is chairing you know who it was most of the time and you put your hand up and you are called on and you know that you better not speak for more than ten seconds so you've got to say your thing so you have to have your sound bite ready you have to, what you're going to say something has to be there on the other hand you may be in a situation where you need to go into a, lot, a great deal of detail with someone who's working on a particular topic and that can be and it may not be someone who is enormously scientifically informed. Okay. And then, and then, yeah. And, and, and I think also, so I, I always say that your job is to make difficult things simple, but it's also to know where to look and to know how to say it in such a way that it will be heard. And finally, before we move on, maybe to understand that your job is to advise and that many other considerations may be taken into account when final decisions or operations are made. And that's fine, as long as you are confident that the input you have given has actually been received. And that's what you should expect to do. OK, so you managed not to get demoralised if if a decision was made that was different from the one you thought I don't be made? think I can think of many areas where because the controversial decisions are political almost always and so it's not normally the case that there's any disagreement about the facts more often i would actually get asked questions like well the migration figures have moved this month from x to y is that statistically significant can we say that migration has gone up or down, or crime has gone up or down, or is it just a blip? Yeah. And then I would have to go and think about it. Right. And on occasion, you know, you might be asked, has there been a change in the rate at which something is changing or not? So you would genuinely be asked, and then that would itself inform um, what was said, because they didn't want, you know, obviously every every government has a political direction, mm. but they wanted to be sure not to say something that would get afterwards caught out. So that, 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 that's the kind of thing. So actually, and often it's when things don't happen, when nothing happens, that, that it's gone right. So I can think of examples 
where it's awkward because there are things I honestly can't talk about detail. Yes. But I can think of one example where there was a, a particular method of age assessment. Tim Tim Cole's probably on the line. He knows more about it than I do. Um, the, um, um, there was a thing about a particular method of age assessment that was being proposed for people who we don't know how old they are. And I, I actually did quite a lot of work on it and um, worked out ex whether or not this was reliable and why, um, and wrote a long report, which I which eventually emerged in public domain, so I can talk about it. Um, and um, and they didn't do it, so um, it was not done. And and actually, um, it's an example of uh, no, I don't know. So did I ever have the frustration of? Of something, no, and, and and then the other thing is, we we also another thing you had to do was to broker um, advisory committees in such ways exactly to avoid the situation that you're talking about. Okay, okay. So I can talk about at this time the advisory council misuse of drugs and how that worked out because that was an example where we had to broker um, a procedure which allowed the committee to give its advice in such a way that if there were mechanisms for what would happen if for any reason advice wasn't taken. But okay. I can talk about that if you want. And that worked out. I was very pleased with that. I'm very proud of it because during, during all the time I was there, there was only one time when the committee's advice wasn't taken. And I can explain what happened because it's again all in, all in the public domain. So somebody may very well have a question about that. Well, so, well, if you want me to, I can spend five minutes. But I do. It's up to you. I think we'll leave that. We'll leave that. We've got questions. Yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd really like you to look back on your period at the Home Office and and tell me what you're proudest of. What you know, especially if it's something that continues. Yes. So I'm I'm very proud of the Modern Slavery Act. Um, that is the one thing which will endure. I mean, I know that today there's a suggestion that it needs to be amended. That the 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 thing that they're worried about is nothing to do with the the work that I did. Um, what the story behind that is that I was once phoned up by the by um, Theresa May's political advisers. They rang all up and. The phone rang and one of the physical advisors was on the phone and said, uh, Bernard, we'd like you to come and see us. And I said, oh, have I done something wrong? <laughs> and um, um, uh, yes, yeah, so and one of them once said, oh, you'd know soon enough if you had. Yeah. Uh, so um, and, and they said, no, no, not at all. Um, we, there's something we would like you to look into. And what it was, they said, I didn't know anything about modern slavery. They said, we want to bring in a a law against an act against modern slavery and we would like to know how many victims or how many crimes this is likely to what's likely to happen you know will there be suddenly you know, how many cases of this are there because nobody knew anyway um i did quite a lot of work on it partly in collaboration with with a couple of other people um and we came up with a figure using a, a method called multiple systems estimation, which I'm still researching in. Um, and this estimate um, became um, headline news. It was, in my view, an underestimate. It's a, it was a very, very conservative estimate, which is fair, fair enough. Um, but we, we basically 
were able to extrapolate from the cases that the police and other authorities actually knew about to estimate what the dark figure, the figure that you don't right. know anything about. So we, we, we had to do all that. I, I've read the paper to the RSS about it, read about it. Um, and it has some similarities to capture recapture. Capture recapture, yes. Yeah. It's, a, it's a multiple version. So it's where you have multiple this test right? mm. And um and so what um what happened was um this work was headline news in these papers. It was the entire front page of the Daily Mail, which by the way, not only reported the work but also reported all the caveats about it that I had written down in the press release in full. I'm very pleased about that. Um, and it was the pivot on which suddenly the public said, or people said, oh, in that case, this is something we really need to do something about. Actually, it was only 10 to 13,000. I think there are a lot more victims than that, but that was a lot more than the ones they knew about already. And it's transformed the way that well, first of all, so we brought in the act. I think we were the first country to have a modern slavery act as such. And it's transformed the way in which um, the public, the police, business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, think about this issue. Right. Now, of course, there are, there are naturally consequences at the moment which are being thought about. But nobody would now suggest that there isn't such a thing as modern slavery. Right. No one would suggest this isn't a problem. The, the current concern is around people claiming to be victims who are not, which is not my business, has nothing to do with it. Um, that's, again, something that will have to be thought about. But the, but the basic principle that this is serious, this matters, is now accepted, not just in this country, but all over the world. Right. And if I may say... I'm very proud. I don't. I don't. You should be proud. But if you, you know, I I reflect that the work I did. It wasn't the only thing that led to the act, but it somehow was the thing which it was one of the things that was headlined in 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 bringing the act into being. And I had amusing experiences subsequently, sitting around the table when, for example, someone would say. Well, Professor Silverman has told us we know how many victims there are. There are this number. And I, they wouldn't know I was sitting there. And I would say, well, actually, I wouldn't be so sure you shouldn't really believe that number exactly. <laughs> but nevertheless. So, so yes, yes, I'm very proud of that. And, and, and I think what's interesting is, again, this is an example of an area where you have a really serious um, application. And it also raises all kinds of fascinating theoretical questions. Um, and so something I'm still working on. So I, I'm a, um, on the council of Durham University. And last week I was in Durham for a meeting and we, we considered our latest uh, modern Stays, slavery statement. statements. Yes. So you'd yes. have been very pleased with us. I'm well, sure. I mean, again, <laughs> it, now that's an interesting thing as well, because Part of the law is that every big organisation has to produce a statement. You could say, well, like you produce a statement, no, no, but people don't do that. Mm -hmm. Once you have to, so this is an example. It's against a sort of soft, mm -hmm. if you like, soft power. You're, 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 so it, and it's exactly the same. The num I may have done, what the work I did was a rigorous piece of statistical work, but of course it has a kind of soft um, consequence. And, and so that's itself an interesting, an interesting example.
Yeah. Great. So can we talk about something different? Can we talk about the Royal Statistical Society? So as Mike mentioned, um, you've been very involved with the RSS. You're, and you were saying earlier, you're an honorary officer and president. So if you're giving advice to a young statistician starting out in their career, um, would you advise them to get involved with professional society and how, in what sort of ways? Well, um, this actually was, that's I never gave a presidential address to the RSS for reasons that we were talking about. Um, but I did, I did give a presidential address to the IMS, and this is what I talked about. Um, professional societies exist. One of the things that professional societies do is to sort of define the subject, the discipline. So they, uh, ideally, they should put a kind of soft boundary around it, in my view. So if you have a discipline like statistics, um, it's we don't want to say you shouldn't do that, it's not statistics. But on the other hand, it is helpful to us because the whole should be more than some of the parts. It is helpful if we have we work together as a community. So I'm a very great believer in scientific communities and statistics as an example of a scientific community and the RSS does that and of course the RSS essentially in the 19th century gave birth to the, the whole issue of government statistics which arguably underpins the whole of government in many ways so I think the RSS has been enormously important now people some people are joiners, I'm a joiner, you're a joiner, and some people just say, oh, well, I can't be bothered. I think if you are, if you don't join, you are sort of freeloading on the people that do. And I think also, if you join and you get involved in the community, it will actually help what you're doing. So a lot of people start out doing you know, an academic particular research career and they don't really want to get involved with other people but actually it's not helpful much better to be in this community of people because you will help each other and gain from each other in ways that you would never have envisaged in the first place and actually the communities that i built and was part of were um were important in my job as well because mm -hmm. I, it, it's about networking so would i invite um, encourage people to become involved absolutely would i encourage people right. and, and the other thing is you know I, I mean 40 50 years ago you could go to every every month there was an rss open meeting and i used to get to all of them and you gained a um you gained an, a big an impression of the big picture it's difficult now because the subject has become so broad and so successful in a way to do that. But nevertheless, the idea of using society membership to gain a bigger picture of what's going on is very important. Yeah, one so, of the things I really enjoyed when I was president is the fact that we used to have the system where the president always chaired the ordinary meetings. Yes. I'm not a theoretical statistician. A lot of those ordinary meetings were really tough statistics. Yes. But I made myself read that paper. Yeah. And yeah. I think I benefited hugely. I'm sure you did. It was exactly. fantastic. I yeah. loved doing that. Yeah, I think so. So um yeah. yeah, so the short answer is of course I would encourage, but then I would say that wouldn't I? <laughs> but right. yes, of course I would encourage um 
because good good science, I mean, science itself as a discipline grew up really in the 17th, 18th century because of organizations like the Royal Society and statistics as we know it in the 19th and 20th through organizations like the RSS. And I think the RSS has missed a trick uh, because it didn't quite, it allowed some areas of data. Data science should never have got away from it, but I'm really glad the RSS is actually trying to do something about that. Can we have a word about the Academy of Mathematics? Yes. Because you've been very involved in those discussions about whether in the UK we need an Academy of uh, Mathematical Sciences or for Mathematical Sciences. And you're a member of the committee that's charged with the feasibility and setup stages that's of the correct. Academy. So how do you see that working and how what's its relationship to the RSS? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, not only am I a member of the committee, but I'm chairing a subgroup whose job it is to figure out um, the relationships. Okay. So someone said to me once, you never take the easy options, do you? <laughs> you always find, yeah, so, so I think, well, if you look at the big national academies we have, we have the Academy of Medical Sciences, Social Sciences, we've got the Academy of Engineering, we've got the British Academy, which is Humanity, Sciences and the Royal Society, which is science generally. Maths, actually, mathematical, mathematical sciences, but I'll, when I say maths, I mean mathematical sciences, yeah. not yeah. narrow mathematics, yeah. is a sort of way of thinking that actually cuts across yeah. all those yeah. divisions. And for exactly the reason, and I think we in this country are very good at mathematics mathematical sciences. We've punched above our way for decades, centuries in this area. And we've also managed always to do for, for the to hold to be less than the sum of the parts. <laughs> right. we, we spend our time fighting against each other. We spend our time saying, oh no, what I do is what you do isn't maths, what I do is more important. Oh no, what I do is practical, what you do is only theoretical, and so on, so on. And this isn't helpful, this doesn't help us. So what I think the academy is really we, we're still working it all out, but it's a sort of way of thinking. It's a way of saying, no, look, hang on a minute. We're all in this together. This is a way of thinking, a way of doing things, which is common across statistics, operational research, applied mathematics, pure mathematics, maths as it's taught in schools, maths as it's used in industry, maths as it's used in research, and so on and so on. Maths is not just the servant of every discipline. It's a discipline in itself. And we feel that mathematics or sciences needs a voice and a larger community. And if you look at what's happened in the medical area and in the engineering area, this doesn't at all um, detract from what the individual, um, the individual groups do. So the, the, the Royal Academy of Engineering doesn't stop the electrical engineers or mechanical engineers or the aeronautical engineers doing their thing, not at all. And the Medical Sciences Academy, my goodness, you would never expect it to take over what the Royal Colleges do and so on. So similarly, there is, it is absolutely not the case that the intention is to poach um, territory members' money from individual societies, not at all as to it's to provide an overarching framework 
um, within which the individual disciplines can do better, actually. Right. How that will work, I don't know. No. Um, and but our task for the next couple of years is to is to put flesh on this little vision that I've just presented and to see how that can go. So, so my my last question before we open up for um, questions from participants is has a country moved in this direction before us? Where where are we looking for good examples? Oh no, it hasn't. No. It hasn't. No. So even though we've got international uh, representation on this call, people may come in and tell us, you, you think that we're leading in this? Well, I, well, yes, because okay. if you, um, well, all right, the, the, the country I'm most familiar with is the United States. Yeah. And, you know, there is interminable arguments inside mathematics, should statistics be part of mathematics department shouldn't it be and of course what's happened is that essentially all if we're not careful everything is is stolen or taken over by data science of the wrong kind or computer okay. science and so we end up you know uh, where enormous number of years of of careful thinking about how to do things gets thrown out the window because there's the people think, oh, well, the whole thing can be done using neural networks or machine learning or something. Well, neural networks, machine learning, they do a lot, but they are a, a form of statistics. And it, it's a bit like saying, well, okay, there are those round things that are on sides of vehicles, but we're not going to take any notice of that. And we're going to now work out, you know, so we'll, we'll design this new wheel. Well, we'll call it a wheel, and it has 93 sides and bits of angles and so on. The fact that people have known for a very long time that actually around one works best <laughs> is, 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 is what you lose. But, you know. That's a lovely way to, to finish our discussion before we open it up. So thank you very much, Bernard. I've got loads more questions. But yeah, I'm afraid because of the technical time, what we've done is we didn't want to make sure to keep you all from your team Absolutely. later. So we want to finish by quarter two. So, so Mike, you're going to bring us some of the questions. Um, yes, well, the one from Tom King, and I think this may be something where both of you will have a view is, do you have any advice about applicant application processes for public appointments? Oh, <laughs> Denise. <laughs> Application processes for yeah. appointments. Maybe, maybe, maybe Tom could amplify. In yes, the, is he concerned in the in the in in the chat box? It'd be interesting yeah. to hear if yeah. Tom's got particular concerns. Yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm in favour of an open as possible procedure, and and one of the things that I feel very strongly about is we don't have porous enough boundaries across um, government. Uh, public service and academia in particular. And I, I think some countries do this better. Um, some countries there are actually scholarships, internships and so on. Oh, we have quite a lot people of to move. We have quite a lot. Yeah, I don't think we have enough. I don't think, I think there's too much separation, but I think you're unusual and having made that. Yeah, I think move. remember in some countries, like in the US, um, senior appointments are all political. Yeah. So it's much easier to go from academia to 
um, government in in America if your party's in power. <laughs> so, and if it's easy to lose a job, though, but if it isn't, and then of course, when when the when the when the party changes, so the president changes, and okay. everyone goes back to their previous job, and of course. The system is set up to allow you to do that. Yes. So yes. you know, if you're if you if you if you if you get a presidential appointment in America, um, your university will hold your post open for decades if necessary. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's because they don't have the ref um, very wisely. Yeah. But but that's that, that's um, yeah. I, I mean, if what. Uh, one of the problems I've seen with public appointments is that the process is they've almost bent over too far so that the process becomes very rigid. So that's, I don't know if you've felt that. So some, this is not, the, the, there is a real, because of all the concerns about openness and fairness, you end up with a process that is so rigid that you don't actually get the good people even applying. And that's actually a problem, and I don't know how you get around that. No. Because it's it's not good to get back to the way it used to be, where they would just ring someone and tap on the shoulder. That's right. I mean, I can I can tell you when I got my job in the Home Office, it was not a tap on the shoulder. You had to go through a very complicated psychometric um, assessment, interviews, etc., etc., etc. So that's one thing. Um, if there, of course, the only thing to say is that. Um, there was a change during my time in government mm -hmm. with public appointments, which is that at one time there would be a, an appointment committee and the appointment would be made and it would be accepted. And now the view is that the, the job of the appointment committee is essentially to sift the candidates and come up with the ones that the minister will then decide who to appoint. So the minister always made the appointment, but the question is, did the minister does the minister actually take any notice at all of the appointment committee? Do they just, you know, do they have a choice? Do they? Yeah. So, uh, and I think this is very difficult. I mean, I think if I may say, the idea of what you might call ministerial interference has been there for a long time. It's not the preserve of one political party or the other. I think it's it. Uh, I would trace it back quite a bit, lot further, um, and. Um, I can remember a moment, uh, I remember appointing a committee where we had to appoint people to committee and the minister was supposed to meet the candidates and then said, oh, brother, why don't you just meet them and tell me and I'll do it. So I think we, we did it, it was fine. Um, I, I think if you, I think if you turn it round, um, ministers are ministers of a democratically elected government. So ultimately, I can see why they feel they have a right to decide who to appoint. Um, I don't know of any minister. I think scientific advisors that doesn't tend to be a problem anyway. And I so I think and and I don't think the sort of public appointments that they're concerned about um, are actually ones which I have much knowledge of actually. So I, I'm I. I, I, so finally, you asked for advice about application processes. Well, my advice to anyone who would like a public appointment is to apply for it. And, and be aware that, well, there's a funny system, but all you can do is, do, is to be yourself, to apply, um, and do your best. If we're talking about 
beyond the UK, then I've certainly worked in countries where I've had huge concern about um, the uh, appointment, particularly of the national statistician, no, yes. um, being a political process. And if somebody produces uh, uncomfortable statistics, they get removed from like place. as in Greece, for example. Horrific. This, I could give you a number of examples. It's very bad. Countries. It's very bad. So I think one of the things that has been very important in this country is trying to remove the appointment of the national statistician from um, being a political appointment um, and to ensure that that statistics reports through statistics yeah. authority into parliament. Into parliament, so, yes. Um, How so easy it will be to maintain that indefinitely, I don't know. There will always be a pullback, but I think um, actually, I think all our politicians um, understand why it's necessary, yeah. yes. And the RSS is very good at fighting. Yeah. Right? And I think that's one of the reasons people should get involved in the RSS. And one of the, one of the disappointments I've had over my career has been the way that the RSS has... The RSS used to work much more closely, if I may say, with the government um, than it did for a while. I don't know what's going on at the moment. But if I look back 40, 50 years, there was much closer... Um, a much closer relationship between the government and the RSS than there was subsequently. And I think that was that's something I am disappointed about. And that's to do with me being... So when I... My predecessor, Miss Stella Cunliffe, who did much the same job as I did in the Home Office in the 70s, because I inherited her dictionary, I remember that, um, was the president of the RSS and the head of... Research That's female president. And the head of research in the Home <laughs> Office at the same time. And by the time I came into the job, it was felt both by the RSS and by the Home Office that these jobs were incompatible. And I think that was... I, I, I mean, they would have been incompatible because I couldn't have done both at the same time because of time. But I reflect that one should stand back and say, is it really incompatible? Because obviously we are very concerned nowadays about conflicts of interest. Nevertheless, I think the RSS has done a great job and you have to maintain independence. It's very important. Yes. And if the way to maintain independence is to say we can't have an officer who's working at the same time in a government position, so be it. But I suspect a bit of thinking around this could be helpful. Can I, can I just say, Bernard, that I think... Tom did come back with a follow-up, but he you've answered his question anyway Fine. in saying what advice do you have to give. Um, and Jane Hutton has come in and said, thank you, Bernard. I also used the wheel example. Um, could I raise a question from my position as somebody who led a lot of the work to develop the new UKSA in my time in ONS? What's your views, both of you, on how successful or otherwise you regard the creation, the act and the creation of the UKSA. You from outside as somebody who led a lot of the work, Denise, yes, in the RSS position, yeah. and you, Bernard, from being an insider. Yeah. And I think it's really important that the RSS does retain this position of being a critical friend. Oh, yeah. And I think that's, that's really important. I think the Statistics Authority um, 
uh, I mean, you might criticise some of its actions on a, on a very specific basis, but in general, I think it's really critical, really important. Um, and I'm, I'm very pleased that we have it. I still get a little confused as to what its role is to, in relation to the broader government statistical service. I think I'm clearer about its relationship to ONS than I am across all of the government statistical service. And I still think there are some difficulties for statisticians in line ministries or quengos. And I've had the experience of being a, a statistician in a quengo where I don't think that I got the support and protection that I should have had. Um, so I don't think it's always perfect. But I think it's really important. Yeah. That's my personal view. I think uh, so. All right. Let me explain my current role. One of my current jobs is to be the chair of what's called the methodological assurance panel for the census. And so we essentially mark the homework of um, ONS as far as the census is concerned. And we will, um, when the national statistician starts making um, recommendations about the future of the census, we will be involved in reviewing all the methodology and so on. So that's so I do I do see it all the time. I I think UX has been an enormous success because it is an expression of independence. It, it, yeah. it says statistics is independent of government, um, and it so it provide it provides a kind of um, buffer against the sort of interference that you can have. I think we're very lucky we've got a chair like Robert Choate. I think it's it's really good to have someone who isn't themselves a statistician, but knows all about statistics and its ramifications. Um, also having an economist is very good because the most controversial pieces of statistics are about are actually economic. I mean, thankfully, I mean, you could, there are countries where everything is up for grabs, <laughs> you know, population, um, living standards, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the, the most difficult issue is around things like the right measures of inflation, and that's very difficult. So having economists there is very good. Um, I think, and having, if I may say, grown-ups who can stand up to parliamentary committees and so on, and to government, is very good. Um, and I think it provides a structure I mean, I know when I was in Home Office, um, that's why they used they, they didn't they did never they never wanted to do anything that would get, as it were, a, a bad mark for us. <laughs> they were, like and that's that. why they used to ask me, "Has that changed between the Because they knew that if they did, if they said um, something that wasn't true, they'd be hauled up about it. And it's odd. It's I think they 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 the ducks are. Um, had power beyond its actual power, and I think it's very good. So I'm, right. I'm, I'm a great fan of the system. I was involved in the, you know, we in setting up the Statistics Commission when I was honorary secretary. It took a long time to figure it out, but the Statistics and Registration Act um, was very good. I think we have a job, and the RSS has to continually educate each new generation of members of parliament and politicians of every party into how this all works. And that's, I think, something that it ought to do. This is not a political, not a party political point. No. No. I think, 
and the and civil servants. And so, statisticians. And actually. statisticians, yes. We all need to understand this system because it's only bound, it, it, it's typical of the British constitution that we can't actually say what power AXA really has, but nevertheless, it's very important. Jane Hutton raises a very interesting point as a follow-up to what you've just both been saying, and that is, I would also like the RSS to provide more support when statisticians point out problems and errors. Do you think the RSS has a bigger role to play here? Yes. Yes, I do. And that's actually part of my concern about the RSS. Um, it, 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 it's taken being a, quote, critical friend a bit too, it's, 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 it's taken this to mean it should move into a kind of hole where it's not communicating. It needs to build better bridges, actually, I think, to, to make it work. I, I think they should do more. I, but I'm not, I don't take it lightly. It's a very difficult thing to do. When I was president of the ISI, we had the situation where the national statistician um, in a country was dismissed and there was outrage the ISI should do something about this, should write letters, should take all sorts of action. And uh, I thought I need to understand more. So I actually travelled to that country and met with some of the official statisticians who told me that the national statistician had had their hand in the till. And that they were so relieved pleased, they? Yes, exactly. and pleased that action had been taken mm. and that they had been complaining for a time. We almost made an international incident of something that we shouldn't have made an, mm. uh, an, uh, an issue over. And it's very difficult when you're outside. So I'm not taking it lightly, but I do think the yes. RSS needs to do more. But if you tell me where the till is, we could put our hand in here. <laughs> There's one more one more question. Um, sorry, I I I I chaired NSAG, the National Statistics Advisory Group, for five or six years, and certainly I do feel that there is a tension between the critical in the critical friend model that um, you know there are times when the RSS needs to be much heavier, perhaps, and less you know less friendly. Yes. And I think it's a useful message to take away for the current chairman. <laughs> But if we don't build the relationships, that the issue is you need to you need to be on you need to be on relationship terms with them, whoever they are, so that you can ring up and say, look, you know something, they say, right. And so that's really the point. You've got to it's actually quite complicated. Yes. You've got to be taken seriously. Yeah. And if you're complaining all the time. You're not taken seriously, so right. it is about deciding when to use. When's the, the right time? Exactly. And then, then perhaps this would be the last question. This is from David Scott, and he says, "Is the RSS taking a role in the current economic problems?" Well, you may. You is may. That David Scott. That's David Scott, my friend from America. Hi, Hi. David. <laughs> <laughs> So David, David and I worked in the same area forever. So it's great that he's on the call. Lovely of you to be here, David. Um, well, of course, this isn't my um, area, so I don't know what the RSS is doing. Well, the RSS, RSS is a member of the Academy of Social Sciences, right? Yeah. And earlier we talked about the, the formation of the Academy of Ma Mathematical Sciences, but we're already 
a member of the Academy of Social Sciences. And I think they're taking a very strong role in relation to exposing the problems, the inequities within our society and the difficulties that that's causing. So I think sometimes we're doing it, but not necessarily directly. Um, but that's a very, very indirect route. It isn't. I mean, I, I mean, what I wonder is, are we, if there are, I mean, let's think about what the statistical aspects. Yes, okay, that's a general issue in inequality. Everybody knows about that, if I may say, and everyone knows in one way or another. One of the difficult issues is there are all kinds of policy interventions that depend on quite granular um, understandings of, um, of various aspects. So, so for example, um, taxation policy or um, giving universal benefits to everybody or many different things like this. And, um, or even how do you measure I mean, the measuring inflation at the moment is seriously problematic. Yeah, it is. And, and I don't know how much the RSS is getting involved in trying to do, say, take a dispassionate view of what is the right, and it could be a view independent of ONS, of, of what is the right way of taking into account energy prices or food prices or whatever um, in in actually getting a longer term understanding of what's going on. So well, that's, that yeah. seems to me that's a big opportunity. And of course, it may be that we've given up the ground to economists and we don't any longer work in this area. But go back 150 years, we certainly do. We certainly did. And I hope we haven't given up the ground. Probably, probably unfair question to both of you because you're a bit distant from that now. But I mean, I can answer, David, by saying that certainly the RSS is taking a major role in trying to get ONS to adopt a, a replacement for the retail price index because the CPI is a macro uh, economic index and it's not reflecting or capable of reflecting the problems for um, households in low income groups. Yeah, and yeah. So and they are, to be fair to ONS, they are doing work. They are. They are. They are and they, and they, well, yes, as I've just gone and say that from, from a very slow start, where it took uh, quite a while to overcome some prejudices from economists feeding in, into this, if I may say so, they've now agreed that they next year will introduce the HCI four times a year, and they are making big strides yeah. forward. Yes, so, so I, think, I think the RSS in this sense is part of the system. So what we're doing is we're supporting the ONS in being a respected independent authority, and I don't see any evidence of serious, of any political interference with the ONS in its work, which is the important thing. And actually providing a platform for professional discussion about some of the methodologies. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very sad that the Queen's death coincided with the RSS conference this year in Aberdeen, which meant that ONS staff weren't there. Mm. Those of us who did go there, gosh, we missed the ONS staff. Oh, yeah. um, and a number of the sessions there, I think, would have been an opportunity for yeah. us to discuss some of these methodologies. So one of the things that I've said to Surian is why don't we have a day at the RSS where we can actually discuss some of the current work of, of ONS? That would be very good. That would be excellent. And I think 
Um, you see, no one's going to mind that this happens. And I think the RSS is, a as long as the RSS is a respected authority, it again will be just stop system thing. I mean, if, you know, we the OBR is another part of this mechanism. And um, as we've seen, um, somehow the democratic process works sometimes. In other words, the OBR. Um, For those of us who are watching internationally, the OBR the Office is of the Budget. Office of Yes, so, so we, yeah, I think maybe I shouldn't, we shouldn't expand too much on this. But I think that um, you, you, you can see all the moving parts moving. Um, I mean, of course, the big question is where will we all be economically in two or three years' time? If we knew that, uh, we would be doing very well. But I, I am actually confident that statisticians do and will play their part uh, appropriately in the developing economic um, situation, and they will inform the um, inform policy. Um, of course, in the end, politicians, are, it, it, the buck stops with them, and in the end, they have to make their but I feel that we, we have the pieces in place, but actually based on reasonable evidence. Great. Well, that's a wonderful well, nothing more in, in the chat box. So, and we I think we've achieved our goal of, of an hour, and even with the slow start. So on behalf of everybody outside in the outside world, can I thank both of you very much for your very thoughtful, Bernard in particular, for... Um, for your contributions today. It's been very illuminating and very interesting. My pleasure. And so, uh, for those in this country, have a nice tea. <laughs> and for those in America, get back to work. <laughs> Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.